Welcome to the Boardcast. My name is Steve Kett, and I'm joined by Ryan Donahue. Hello, everyone. Ryan and I are delighted that you've decided to join us for Episode 2 of the Boardcast. By the way, if you've not yet listened to Episode 1 with Ken Kaufman, the chair of Kaufman Hall, we'd be delighted if you did. We talked with Ken about the state of disruption in healthcare today, and we think it's well worth a listen. And clocking in at just under 30 minutes, it won't take much of your time either. Today, we have another terrific and highly respected voice in healthcare as our guest, and I will introduce him very shortly. So as ever, we hope you sit back, you refill your coffee, continue driving whatever you're doing right now, and enjoy this episode of The Boardcast. The Boardcast is brought to you by the Governance Institute, a service of NRC Health. And on this podcast, we focus on what healthcare boards and leaders need to know to work smarter in today's healthcare environment. Well, Ryan, yours truly recently had to access some healthcare services personally, and that kept me from attending our two fall leadership conferences in San Diego and Colorado Springs. I missed being there with our wonderful members, our meetings team, and in such spectacular venues. But I want to thank you again so much for stepping in and moderating in my absence. Well, you're welcome, and we missed you. Just to be clear, I would not say that I put you out of a job, and thank goodness for that. Turns out moderating a conference is kind of exhausting. Yeah, you young people. Um, Anyway, thanks again for stepping in for me. It was greatly appreciated. And one more thing, a little bit more serious note here, and speaking of my own recent healthcare experiences, it's kind of sad to say, but the ravages of COVID-19 on healthcare staffs themselves combined with the endemic staffing shortages in healthcare that predate the pandemic, and now the great resignation that we're seeing across industries, including healthcare, have wreaked havoc on patient experience, at least my patient experience. While I was in the ICU, care seemed relatively unaffected, attentive, team-based, and relatively patient-centered. However, when I moved to the floor, the change was stark and immediate. Team-based care collaboration gave way to what seemed more like an every-person-for-themselves model. Hearing nurses literally screaming at one another one night right outside my door was not only not a great experience, it actively worked against my recovery. And as the current confluence of circumstances seems fairly widespread, it seems to me they're going to set back not just patient experience efforts, but potentially, and much more importantly, care safety and quality itself substantially and for some time. I hope my experience was an outlier, but what are you hearing in your recent conversations with other healthcare leaders on these sorts of topics? Well, unfortunately, I'm hearing the same, and I don't believe your experience was an outlier. I did a quick unplanned stint in the ER myself earlier this year. Turns out stairs can be tricky things, and I'm all healed up now, but I will not forget sitting in a hallway Uh, for hours because no rooms were available. Uh, There were very sick people in the waiting room, and I'd love to think they were being monitored, but I have no proof that anyone was watching over them. The caregivers were doing their best. They were scrambling about, hair on fire, but they were seemingly always behind. It's disheartening and largely still invisible to the wider community. You know, if you haven't physically been inside an ER lately, you really don't know how bad it is. Well, in terms of running a healthcare delivery system, It seems to me that one of the largest lasting impacts of COVID-19, beyond the tragedy of the lives lost, of course, may well be its effects on human capital and healthcare. Further, every CEO that I talk with these days believes that the mental health impacts on their staff 
of the last 20 months are just now beginning to be felt and will be felt intensely for years to come. You know, another large and I think lasting impact of this pandemic that I'm hearing all the time from healthcare leaders that we're speaking with is how to live, learning how to live with an increasing number of endemic viruses moving forward. And, you know, our record to date, at least with COVID, is not encouraging. The leaders are being asked to formulate strategy and plan that strategy in an environment where there are constantly shifting facts on the ground. But let's shift gears for a bit. Uh, why don't we go ahead and introduce our guest for today's episode of the broadcast? Sounds good. So here are four things to know about our very special guest today, Dr. Stephen Clasco. Number one, Dr. Clasco has been through a variety of careers, starting his professional career as a disc jockey then going to medical school and becoming a private practice obstetrician, participating in the birth of more than 2,500 babies, culminating in a Wharton MBA, then leading as dean, president, and CEO three different academic medical centers. In fact, he's currently the president and CEO of Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health, the fastest-growing academic medical center in the country. Number two, Steve is a prolific writer and has written several books, including... My favorite, Bless This Mess, A Picture Story of Healthcare in America. Last year's Unhealthcare, A Manifesto for Health Assurance with Hemant Tanesha, the founder of Airbnb and Livongo. And Patient No Longer with the broadcast's own Ryan Donahue from NRC Health. Number three, Dr. Clasco's research into how technology can reduce health inequities has led him to being named the first physician to be a distinguished fellow of the World Economic Forum leading the platform on the digital economy and being named as the only physician by Fast Company Magazine as one of the 25 most creative people in business. And fourth and finally, Steve's vision of healthcare at any address has led to his appointment on several fourth industrial revolution boards, including MindStrong, a behavioral health technology company, Nuvo, a remote obstetric monitoring company, and the Health Assurance SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, searching for companies that can vault healthcare into the consumer revolution. So with that, welcome Dr. Steve Clasco. It's great to be with both of you, Steve and, and Ryan, and uh, look forward to uh, being part of uh, Future Governance Institute's three-dimensional opportunity. Well, that's great, Steve. We're excited as well. We're great to have you here today on the broadcast, but you're absolutely right. I want to mention that you'll be speaking and you'll be with us quite a bit in 2022. You'll be at the Governance Institute's leadership conferences, joining us three times, I believe, February at the O Palm in Manalapan, Florida. You'll be March at the Cloisters in Sea Island, Georgia, and April at the Fairmont Princess in Scottsdale, Arizona. We are with us and your energy. And more importantly, I'm certain that everyone in the crowd is going to enjoy it the most. So as we get started today, I thought we might begin with some of your own news. And there's some news here. I'm sure that many of those listening are aware that you will now be moving on to the next chapter in your career at the end of the month, leaving Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health. Give us the 30,000 foot version of this story. Why now and what's next for you? Well, you know, uh, part of it is I like to be predictably unpredictable, but, um, you know, the, the, the real answer is I've been straddling the line uh, for about, I guess, about three or four years uh, between the T-shirt and jeans uh, 
uh, crowd in, in Silicon Valley and, you know, leading Jefferson into what's now an 18 hospital, two campus university, uh, and $2 billion insurer. And, you know, um, I, I thought, frankly, that it would take a lot longer to get Jefferson to where we, we, we needed to be. And this last six months has been a little bit, uh, Ryan, like those last five minutes of fireworks, right? Um, in September 27th, we signed an amazing health equity uh, relationship using technology with Novartis. On October 4th, we uh, we completed a three-year, if you will, fight with the FTC to acquire Einstein Healthcare Network, uh, which gave us half of an insurer. Um, on October 18th, we signed a very large deal with General Catalyst, which is Haymont's group, uh, around a hospital home and some other technologies. And November 1st, uh, we acquired uh, a, a $2 billion, uh, 290,000-person Medicaid and Medicare Advantage group. So so literally recognizing that all those things that I wanted to do by about 2023 were happening, it gave me a chance to think about, I really now want to get to the point where I'm working nationally, as, as, as Steve said, to move uh, social determinants, population health, predictive analytics, from the philosophic to the mainstream of clinical care and payment model. Well, we're going to dig in a bit more into the question, Steve, that Ryan just asked you as we continued today. What we thought, in fact, might be a good organizing principle for this conversation is to use this moment in your career, Steve, as a jumping off point. Specifically, looking back over your career as both a physician and a healthcare CEO, what is most striking to you about the healthcare industry across that time as you sit here today? as well as looking forward at what's next, both for you personally and where do you see the industry in the next five or 10 years, say. You have been an incredibly astute observer of the industry and genuine innovator for your entire career. And today, you're at a unique point in that career. So we're asking you, if you will, to be like the Roman god Janus, looking both backward and forward simultaneously. We thought that Comparing you to a Roman god probably wasn't the worst way to begin. Does that sound okay? Yeah, it sounds like I could get whiplash, though. Um, so, yeah. So, um, I, look, I think the, the looking back, um, especially looking back from, from the, you know, the, the lens of the pandemic, I, I'll just quote Sebastian Thrun, uh, who was the founder of Google X. He said, he said, the issue in American healthcare is not that you aim too high and fail, it's that you aim too low and exactly hit the mark. And I think what, what really hits me looking back, frankly, is um, that I was viewed uh, as a disruptor talking about, hey, you know, the fact that maybe we should think about getting health care out of the place where the sickest people are and, in, you know, closer to the home when we first start talking about health care at any address. That I was viewed as a disruptor when I talked about diversifying your portfolio as an academic medical center, um, you know, to include some of the technology and some of the startup type founder shares and innovation. And then I was viewed as a disruptor when I said that, you know, maybe uh, we shouldn't just choose students based on science, GPA, MedCats, and organic chemistry grades, and then be amazed that doctors aren't more empathetic, communicative, and creative. That, you know, the computers can do a better job of memorizing the Krebs cycle than any human can. So why wouldn't we admit humans based on self-awareness, empathy, communication skills, and cultural competence? I mean, and, and again, the reason I'm saying that is, you know, it seems pretty, it seems pretty obvious at least to me, and now it, it, it is very obvious. So I think, I think the, the biggest surprise looking back to me is that 
that that we escape the consumer revolution, and maybe even the bigger surprise piece is, is and Ryan is that is that consumers allowed it. I just I just saw Harris poll. We'll talk about this a little bit. The Governance Institute is sixty two percent of people believe that we intentionally make healthcare complicated and difficult. And in any other industry, you'd be out of business. Now we can't be out of business in health. But that leads to a situation where you have literally $4 trillion being spent, you know, in a situation where most people believe that we have Star Wars technology for individual patients, but that our healthcare delivery system is still in a Fred Flintstone matter. So, so I think that, that that's probably a good segue into, you know, looking back on the past. Uh, you know, amazing, amazing, amazing work's been done in how I handle an individual obstetric patient. Uh, but literally the fact that, you know, in some places people are still getting on the phone, listening to 11 options before they get an appointment next Wednesday hasn't changed at all. So what do I see in the future? I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to, um, just on this, let's stick on the, the looking back for just a minute here, Stephen, and, and um, a different question, but of course, one of the um, facts of life, if you will, in American healthcare that's always played its part in slowing down or delaying progress is simply the grindingly slow pace of change in in healthcare and everything. Now, Silicon Valley, as you, as we mentioned earlier in introducing you, likes to move fast and break things, uh, as they say. Now, that is not our reality in healthcare, and for many good reasons. But do you think it has to be either or? Is there no middle ground there? Well, boy, I'm so glad you asked that question um, because uh, you mentioned one of the books on healthcare, Manifesto for Health Assurance. It starts out with, what if a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, Hamas, and a CEO of a 196-year-old academic medical center, Steve, had a baby? What would that baby look like between move fast and break things and sort of the risk-averse, traditionally risk-averse, we improve lives? And we created that baby. Uh, you know, in, in Philadelphia, we took our entire digital innovation consumer experience team together with some GC people and, and, and started Attendo. So the, you hit the nail on the head. Silicon Valley has not done a good job of really transforming healthcare because they, most of the things they've done just make, make the wealthy healthier, right? So, you know, some of the, 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 uh, the Fitbits and, and the wearables have been, you know, I can measure my steps with somebody else. But literally, that hasn't worked in most cases for the underserved. And by the way, if you really wanted to know one thing that would make a difference, it's connectivity, right? I mean, if, if you did not have broadband during COVID, uh, you were in virtual jail. You couldn't get telehealth. You couldn't get online education. So I think that what my passion in the next 10 years of my career before I make it to the assisted living facility is that um, I'd like to really bring together those those two worlds and really look at responsible innovation, right? If we knew that the social media revolution wasn't just going to be so I could see my unbelievably cute grandkid on Facebook, but was going to affect elections and spew hate, we might have put some guardrails in. I'm, I've been spending a lot of time looking at what are the guardrails around uh, data being available for everybody? How can we use blockchain so that we can get everybody's data, make snap decisions, use Silicon Valley type technologies? but also give people the privacy and ethics that they deserve. So, so let me ask just a quick follow-up here on that, Steve, and thanks, thanks for the, 
the thoughts on that. I, I think that the, the mix of the two uh, worlds, if you will, move fast and break things, and then obviously our world of healthcare, um, I don't think is pie in the sky. I think uh, there's a lot of there there, uh, as you pointed out with Hemant in unhealthcare. But um, let me just ask about the pace of change in healthcare just quickly, because this is a personal uh, interest to me. So, you know, last spring, um, uh, COVID-19 forced, you know, incredibly rapid changes. Uh, think of virtual care modalities, for example, onto healthcare. So do you believe um, in any way, Steve, that the pace of change in healthcare has perhaps accelerated as a result of the pandemic? And I mean here the overall pace, not just the change in one area like virtual. And what will be the indicators in your mind that the overall pace of change in our world of healthcare has accelerated? Yeah, but, you know, that's really the million-dollar question, Steve, is, you know, it, you know is COVID the, the nexus turning point or is it just a blip? In the past, we've often thought, aha, this is the point that healthcare is going to join the consumer revolution and it hasn't worked out that way. We're already seeing some of that, Stephen Ryan, in, in clawbacks, for example, in telehealth with certain insurers. So I think there are two or three things that I think will will show that, that this is different. One is, if we start to see more payer provider alignment, and Steve, you and I have talked about this a lot, but you know, you know, it's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. And the fact that that we've had a system where we've all been allowed to, you know, do what maximizes our revenue, right? Insurers figuring out how they can, you know, increase the medical decrease the medical loss ratio. Providers figuring out how they can get more money for their for their hospital admissions. Pharma, you know, doing advertising for, you know, very large uh, and, and high-priced drugs without basically, you know, really incentivizing together. So one of the probably most important things that I've done at Jefferson is create that integrated delivery and financial system through our ACO and through our acquisition of health partners plan. So once you start to bring those two worlds together, you'll start to see a change. The second thing I think that, that will force that change is we have to allow places to fail. If you have a leapfrog D and you're expensive, you just shouldn't be at, you know, you know we should actually encourage consolidation instead of having the, you know, the FTC folks come in and say, we don't want, we don't want this underperforming hospital to join, you know, a, a great hospital system. So I think, I think that's the second thing. And then I think the third thing is going to be, you know, that I do believe that consumers, especially younger consumers, and in some cases, us baby boomers, are going to have their mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore moment. That this is absolutely crazy that we are stuck in a Sears and Penny's mode in healthcare where everything else has moved to a, to an Amazon and Tesla mode. Got it. Let me ask a related uh, question about this, Steve, because <clears throat> as, as we talk about your career as sort of the centerpiece here, um, one of the things that's been constant, at least in how I've tried to follow, and we've written a book together, so we know each other well, but there's been this near continuous discussion, anticipation, even prognostication about imminent disruption in healthcare. And I have my copy of The Phantom Stethoscope from 20 years ago, and it's a great book. And you've been in this game for twice as long, 40 years. And during that time, that system that you entered into out of medical school has roughly stayed the same. So let me ask two questions. First is disruption sort of preordained to come from outside of an industry? We can't do it inside healthcare. Does it have to come from outside? And if that's the case, why? 
Yeah, well, so, so, Ryan, look, yeah, I mean, I did a TED Talk, like, back in 2014 about what was going to happen in 2020, and some of it's happened, uh, you know, because back then, you know, talking about telehealth was you must be crazy or on drugs. So I think some of it's happened. I've tried to get away from the word disruption. I think it's more creative construction of, of a new system. Um, but but I think I think we're starting to see cracks and, and some of those major disruptions happening. The problem has been it's been outside of our system. And what I mean by that is look at the Oak Streets of the world. Look at the Ten Meds of the world. Look at the Oscars of the world that have made billions of dollars by just doing what we ought to do and haven't been able to do. So I think we are starting to see that, that, that proving, hey, I got an idea. How do I, if I take low risk patients, treat them nice and guarantee, guarantee to see them in 15 minutes? All right, that's a $30 billion company. I mean, the fact, so the fact that, that we're able to create those companies, Livongo is such a great example, Ryan, because, you know, we were involved in that from, from the very beginning. And how did that become an $18.5 billion company? They bought a, a glucometer company. They did one thing, and everybody listening that's in healthcare today should listen to this one thing, that they basically said, you know what, diabetic patients, 97% of people in Philadelphia, Ryan, do not view themselves as patients. They don't get up in the morning and say, I'm a diabetic patient, I'm a congestive heart failure patient, I'm a cancer patient. They wake up in the morning and say, I'm a person that would like to be able to thrive without healthcare getting in the way. Lovango said, you know, at Jefferson, Penn, Temple, Mass, Mass General can only treat you like patients. Come to my office, come to my ER, come to my hospital. We're going to treat you like a person that happens to have diabetes. So we're going to be your invisible friend 24-7. Okay, that became, Ryan, an $18.5 billion company. And there's nothing that Lovango did that, that we couldn't have done. So I think we're starting to see that disruption. And I think what's going to happen, and Jefferson's already done it, what we announced at HLPH is we're going to diversify our portfolio by getting at the very beginning of these kind of companies. But I think what's going to happen is health systems that don't get into that are not going to be able to succeed. And entrepreneurs that just have an idea that any of us can do are not going to be able to make $30 billion companies. Well, so let me, let me ask you this then. I, I love that answer. And, you know, when it comes to disruption, or should we say creative destruction, I like that better. You know, in any industry, you look inside the legacy companies, and we're sort of talking about them without talking about them. And when we say legacy companies in healthcare, you know what we're picturing. It does seem like inside those companies, it's all stick. And outside of disruptor organizations or outside creative organizations, it seems like it's all carrot. It's all rewards for changing right. things, whereas internally, it's not. So do you agree with that? Do you think legacy organizations overlook some of those advantages that they have over these outside, you know, kind of invasive species? Or do we miss that boat on the inside? Well, look, I, I think it's, it's partly that we have an unsustainable system and we've been, you know, and we've been able to, frankly, like, you know, use a metaphor, live on drugs, right? I, I could traditionally live on, I could be 5% more inefficient. And just charge the insurance company 7% more. The insurance company would say, okay, well, you know, Jeff is charging 7% more. I'll charge the employer 9% more. And we had this sort of fantasy that that could go on. By the way, it's even worse in the other part of my life, as Steve Kett knows, in academics, you know, where it's like, oh, God, you know, I was 10% more inefficient this year. So let's increase uh, tuition. Um, so I, I think, I think, and, you know, the insurers pay the same way. I'm going to get 17 cents on the dollar 
to make sure the people that pay for the care get the care and provide the care don't don't talk to each other. And pharma, same way. I'm going to do Morning Joe commercials about four hundred thousand dollars stage four lung cancer drugs, so patients will will want that. I think that that's all great if 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 money grows on a money tree. But I think what we're starting to see, and that's what led to some of the Medicare for all issues, is that's just unsustainable. So I'll just say this, that, 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 you know, I was on a cable show and I said Bernie Sanders was 100% right about the problem. The pandemic proved it. We have a broken, fragmented, expensive, and inequitable system. Gets an A for that. I think the pandemic also proved he was 100% wrong about how to solve it. Like, oh, let's let the federal government, the state government, city government, the local governments will all get together perfectly in synchronized swimming and run the thing. That's clearly not going to work. So how do we take the problem and come up with a new solution? That's creative construction. Well, I love that. So let's let's stay with this one more piece, because when I hear you talk about creative destruction, you know, one, one thing you've worked on throughout your career is starting that early and in the education and training of physicians. And both Steve and I remember you, Dr. Clasco, showing us around the Camel Center at the University of South Florida. I remember walking through those halls as it was opening. At the time, Camels was the largest facility dedicated to simulation and team-based clinician training in the nation. It was fantastic. It felt like I was on the set of iRobot. And so now you've got physicians trained or at least starting to be trained differently today than when you were starting out. Will they continue to be in the next decade? What's going to continue to drive these changes at that level? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. It's something I'm really passionate about. You know, and if you remember the phantom stethoscope, you know, it was one of the early studies I did when I graduated from Wharton, where we looked at, you know, the way that we select and educate physicians, we joined the cult around four biases, an autonomy bias, a competitive bias, a hierarchical bias, and a non-creativity bias. And I've really spent a good part of my career doing research on how we can get that non-creativity bias. We're creative, but we don't believe that creativity is, is is the most important thing. And at a time when healthcare is going through all the changes going through, that's exactly what you need as a skill set. So, you know, the, the answer is we have, to, like everything else, we have to stop thinking incrementally, right? I mean, the double AMC, like, is all, all excited about themselves that they've added some health equity uh, questions to the MedCat. Get rid of the MedCat. I mean, the, the, the simple fact is that, you know, being able to memorize the Krebs cycle as the you know single biggest determinant of whether or not you can be a doctor is just asinine in 2021 when there's going to be an IBM Watson or Google Brain next to me that's going to be better than any human at doing that. And 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 the one other thing I'll say, we talk a lot about diversity in healthcare. It's another area where we've been so non-creative. Four percent of matriculating medical students in 1978 were African American males. That's it's the same percentage today in 2021. When we started that whole Campbell's revolution and the medical school down in Florida, where we chose students based on self-awareness and empathy, we quadrupled diversity. Why? Because literally we were able to get into what will make a person a good doctor of the future. The whole issue of Campbell's was the fact that, as you know, Stephen Ryan, I'm a pilot, and every two years I have to get my technical and teamwork competence assessed. Um, but nobody has ever assessed my technical or teamwork competence objectively as a surgeon for 30 years. So you're a hell of a lot safer flying with me in Philadelphia than being operated by me in Philadelphia. So here's a question that we like to ask as we start to move towards the close here, Steve, uh, of part one anyway. Here's a question we like to ask of all of our guests on the broadcast. 
What's the single most important topic that health systems should be discussing at the board level right now that they are not discussing today? That's easier than it might seem, and the, and, and the answer is cybersecurity. I believe that, you know, as we, as we move toward this sort of health care at any address model, as we move toward uh, uh, the fourth industrial revolution getting involved in, in, in health care, as we move toward, hey, Mrs. Jones, you know, please give us all your genomic data, and don't worry, you can trust us. We might share it with Google or Amazon, but you can trust us, you know, uh, not to mention the, the, the billions and billions and billions of dollars that's going to be spent on, um, on you know, trying to hack uh, healthcare data. Uh, security is literally the number one issue that's not being talked about. That needs to be at a board level. You know, you need some, my, one of my EVPs is one of the top people in the world in understanding cryptocurrency and blockchain. And if, if, if you don't have somebody like that on your board, or on your senior management, um, then you're going to be you're, you're going to be really hurting when when folks come and and try to get your data. Well, this is yeah, I love that answer. I think uh, you know it makes perfect sense, and it's something that if we don't take care of that, then we're going to have a lot of trouble. And and Steve, you just you set such a fantastic job of running the gambit here. But now we're going to put you into a different kind of pressure cooker. This is time now for the broadcast. Think fast. So, okay, I'm a high-risk obstetrician. My guess is you're not going to put me into a pressure cooker that I haven't been in. No, it probably won't. It probably won't be. So we expect really great performance because of that with your, with your great experience. Um, and, and we want to get to know you more personally. You know, you've ran the gamut on healthcare topics, but we want to get kind of beyond the boardroom, if you will. So to do that, we're going to wrap up our conversation today with Think Fast. For these questions, I must tell you, you've got to give your personal preference between just two choices I give you, just two. And please do not answer both or it depends, and that's not allowed. You can't answer that to any question. Are you ready? I think so, I'm a little scared, but I'm ready. All right, let's start. Optimist or realist? Optimist. Morning person or evening person? Morning. Fiction or nonfiction? Definitely fiction. Bookstore or online? Bookstore. Okay. Uh, morning coffee or morning Coke? Morning <laughs> uh, Morning coffee. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. We'll skip right past. Cabernet or Pinot? Oh, easy one. Cabernet. Bold. I'm a bold guy. Like a bold red wine. Okay. Eagles or Flyers? <sighs> flyers. Okay, you, had a, you thought about it. Succession or Squid Game? Last question. Squid Game. Squid Game. You know, it's uh, eat or be eaten. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Uh, you sent a couple, but yeah, overall, you did very well, and we appreciate Thank those you. responses. We're going to enter those. Are you, are you going to send that? To, are you going to send that to my psychiatrist or or my next boss? <laughs> We are going to send it to no shortage of places, and we're going to okay. enter it into the broadcast good to know database for potential later use. So, so make sure you stay on your toes <laughs> next year at the conferences. Well, Sounds great. So, Steve, thanks. 
Once again, for joining us today on the broadcast, it's always terrific to speak with you. I know we've been moving fast here, but we so appreciate your spending some time with us today. Please come back. No, thank you, and I look forward to listening to future uh, broadcasts. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the broadcast. An incredible career, an important transition in that career. And I know that all of our Governance Institute members listening will know just how insightful and entertaining Steve always is. And today was no exception. So we'll thank Steve again for taking the time. And don't forget, Dr. Klaska is going to be joining us for three of our conferences next year. So finalize your plans to join us. Soon 2022 will be here before you know it. And if you like today's episode of the broadcast, please hit subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you stream your podcasts. And please let us know how we're doing. Feel free to drop Ryan or me a note or pull us aside at an upcoming Governance Institute event and let us know. We can always do better, and you can all help us do just that. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And please join us again. There's always much, much more to come. Thanks, everyone.